And I feel that way about the platitudes too. Like I get to tell myself that everything happens for a reason. I get to tell myself, you know, that Madeline was only an infant. I get to tell myself that God needed her more than I did. I get to tell myself all of those things and I allow them to become my silver linings. But the second you try to tell me that, we're going to step outside in the alley and have words. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Crystal Webster, who is the founder of Sharing Solace. Sharing Solace is a community of grievers that melds tangible gifts and meaningful community to help those grieving remember that they are not alone. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you very much for being here with me today. So can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to begin Sharing Solace? Oh, absolutely. So Sharing Solace really came out of the love and the life and the legacy of my daughter, Madeline Elizabeth. She was born May 19th, 2010, and she passed away in my arms the next day, May 20th from a genetic condition that I unknowingly gave to her at the time. And basically that sent me into a tailspin, like I think it would probably anyone else. Mm. You know, I was grieving the loss of my daughter. I was grieving the loss of the life that I was hoping to have with her. And then toss on top of that, grieving the possibility of a family, of a biological family, because of all these genetic concerns that... I didn't even know about until after she died. Mm -hmm. So I found that I was digging myself into a deep hole. And at some point I just woke up and was like, I cannot continue to live my life waiting to die. What was your day to day like? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe after the first couple of weeks passing, what your new normal was like? Oh, absolutely. So The first few weeks and months were very much a blur in that I had just given birth to my first child. So I was on all kinds of hormones and I had had a C-section. So I was bedridden. Right. And you're married. And so how did your husband take this? He really kicked into fight mode. And uh, that sounds wrong. Um, He... Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess in a way he was fighting yes, for you, yes. right? We were not fighting in that we were fighting each other, more like we were fighting the world together. Um, mm-hmm. He had to, you know, he had to continue his own responsibilities and also take over everything for me as well. Because I not only physically couldn't do anything because I was bedridden, but I was also mentally couldn't do anything because my brain just wasn't there. And I think that even though he had many of those same thoughts and feelings, he knew, you know, that he kind of had to take care of things because he knew that I sure wasn't going to be able to. So he took care of things Mm -hmm. for us. And so did you have family around you as well? Or, you know, you say that you passed this kind of genetic condition without knowing it. Had anyone in your family ever had it? And can you talk a little bit about what that genetic condition is? Absolutely. So. I had no idea. Basically, if you know anything about chromosomes in the human body, they come in pairs. Mm -hmm. And basically, when you go to have children, 
you give up half of your pairs and your significant other gives up the other half of their pairs and they basically make a new puzzle. I kind of see it as, you know, like I have a puzzle and my husband has a puzzle and then you cut it in half and make a child with the puzzle pieces that you share. So I have, my genetic condition is I have all of the right puzzle pieces. They're just in the wrong order. It's Mm -hmm. just, you know, the puzzle looks about right. But until you really get down into looking at each individual piece, do you not, you don't notice it. Yeah. So I have what is called a 513 translocation. But when you go to cut that, you know, when I go to give my chromosomes to my children, the likelihood of them getting enough of the right chromosomes to make them be able to live and breathe and function on their own is slim to none. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically, she, my Madeline didn't have the chromosomes to make her brain fully form. And so because of that, her brain couldn't tell her lungs to breathe and her heart to beat. Did the doctors who delivered her know this right away or only when what happened happened? So we thought everything was normal until 32 weeks pregnant. You know, we'd gone in for ultrasounds and doctor's visits and everything. And everything was fine until we went in for what we thought was a routine ultrasound at 32 weeks. Mm -hmm. And they noticed that her head was larger than it should have been. And so at that point, we started seeing specialists and kind of going from there. But it wasn't until after her passing, did we know really what had happened? Mm -hmm. She did live for eight hours after she was born, which just absolutely means the world to me. I got to hold her and hear her coo and see her, you know, hold her as a child. But she did pass eight hours after she was born in my arms. I would like to think that it was the best way that that could have happened. And the sense that I get from talking with you in this conversation and in a prior conversation is that it seems like you never would have changed what happened or this experience. Oh, I mean, I absolutely would have her. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, if I could go back and change the situation where she could still be here today, 100%, 100%, that is what I would do. And also, I understand that that is not feasible. So I've, mm-hmm. I've learned to find my own silver linings and I've chosen to make this situation hopefully make me a better person and not a bitter person. Yeah. And how was that transformation from those early weeks and maybe even months with this inability to move on and you were getting deeper into this despair Where did the turning point happen? Well, first of all, it wasn't just days or weeks or months. It was years. My life was really on hold from 2010 to 2015. And part of the reason that it was years was once we found out, you know, once Madeline passed and we understood what her issues were and why it happened we were told that really the only way that we could have biological children was through science and in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. So we spent the next five years through three rounds of IVF, hoping to have bring Madeline siblings. And that's its own unique hell on earth. 
Yes, I've heard stories of this. And for listeners who may not be familiar with it, can you explain just a little bit about how trying that is? Well, I kind of equate it into an entire lifetime of emotions, the ups and the downs and and everything being crammed into about a three-month time period. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you're doing... And plus, as me, I was hopped up on a lot of hormones, you know, because they have to make your body do what it wants, what they want it to do. So I'm wildly hormonal. I'm wildly emotional. And you're being told, you know, this is going well, this is going well. Okay, this is not going well. You know, and you're kind of riding this roller coaster, kind of hopefully trying to get to the top. And then you get to the top and you just plummet to the bottom when they say, you know, you're not pregnant or you don't have any embryos to transfer. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a strange sensation to hope, but also brace yourself. Yes, very much. You have to do both. Mm-hmm. You have to be hopeful. And you also have to understand that this isn't a sure thing. Mm-hmm. And I learned that the hard way. I really thought, because I really didn't have any issues or problems getting pregnant or staying pregnant with Madeline. It was just at the very end when everything fell apart. So I thought, oh, okay, well, that was easy. So this will be easy. We just got to, you know, kind of go through the steps and, you know, you just follow the line and check the boxes. And then at the end, we'll have our happy, healthy family. And I'm a type A. (laughs) And so this will be perfect in that I get to, you know, plan the exact day that I get pregnant. You know, I will have to have a C-section. So I get to plan that day and that like I get to pick birthdays. I get to, well, it's not convenient for me to do it this day. So let's do it that day kind of thing. Yeah. So at what point did you and your husband decide, or I don't know, was the decision made for you that IVF was not something you were going to continue? Well, we were very lucky in that our health insurance helped to cover three rounds of IVF. So it wasn't quite the financial burden that it is for some people. Mm -hmm. But we basically, from the very beginning, we decided that we were going to do our three rounds. And if that didn't work, then we needed to look for other opportunities and other options because you can, and I know people that, you know, just one more time, just one more time. It's almost like a fix. You got to keep going okay, let me, well, that didn't work this time, but if I do it this way, let's try it that way this time type of thing. You know, there's a lot of science to it, but it's an art too. And so from the beginning, we said, okay, we're going to do this three times. And if it doesn't work by the third time, then, you know, we will close this book. Did that seem from your vantage point going through it as sort of a relief or sort of a comfort to know that you would be done at a certain point? Yes and no. Honestly, I don't know. Because I, I, even going through it, even up to the very last round, I never thought that it wouldn't work. You know, I always just thought, okay, well, you know, you got to get the first one out of the way to figure how it, out how it does. And then the second one, we moved locations. So that, you know, kind of messes things up. And so I never really thought, I just thought, okay, this is just the next hurdle we have to get through to get to the finish line. Did you ever consider adoption? Uh, that that's always been a consideration for us. And I have very good friends and I've looked into that, you know, the process here in Kansas multiple times. There's just something that I, I can't quite get there emotionally. Like logically, I can like 
that is what I should do logically. Like there are children in the world that need loving, caring, human parents. And I understand that logically, emotionally. Every time I try to have that conversation with myself, I end up in the fetal position in the corner of the room. I, I think there's just a lot of, of baggage and of emotions that I need to work through my, you know, myself. Um, and I'm not there yet. Right. Did you have help, Crystal, when this journey that you've been on, and I know we haven't even begun to talk about the last five years, but during that time, did you have, aside from your husband, any mental health support or any kind of resources to guide you through this very emotional time? Yes and no. You know, I have very caring, loving family. My family is very loving and caring and there for me when needed, period. Mm -hmm. It took me far too long to allow myself to see a therapist. What do you think that was about? I think a lot of that was just societal impressions and just, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm stronger than that. I, mm-hmm. you know, I can do that myself and I don't need, I don't need some Yahoo telling me how to think and what to do. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I that, think that's common. Yeah. I think people, I understand that. But I absolutely, I will shout it from the mountaintops. You go to the doctor to, you know, get your blood pressure and your blood sugar. And like, you go to the doctor, the regular doctor for a checkup. I think it's Zig Ziglar that says, get a checkup from the neck up. Why do you not go see a therapist? That is just as much health. Mm-hmm. Your mental health is just as important as your physical health. And so now that I've, you know, started seeing someone and I don't go, I'm not a once a weeker. I'm a once every four to six weeker person, mm-hmm. but it's just enough to kind of keep me on track. And it's, you know, so if I start to veer off in those three or six weeks, I have someone to kind of pull me back on track. Yeah. So what do you feel you had to let go of something in order to make the decision to go talk to someone who was a professional? Um, I've really had to let go of my pride more than anything for this whole process. Because, you know, there's something about just saying you could use help, not even that you need help. I think a lot of people just have issues saying, you know, it would be nice to have some help, whether that's talking to someone that knows more about mental health than you do or vacuuming the carpet or, you know, it doesn't. (laughs) So I've really found myself saying, let me know if you want help versus let me know if you need help. Mm -hmm. Just with my friends and family, like I want to help. Let me know if you want my help. Just because I think if you say, let me know if you need help. Well, that, you know, I don't need anything. I got this on my own type of thing. Yeah, yeah, I see that. So you, you're in 2015 then, 2015-ish, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so what was the next phase for you when you look back on how you've evolved through this experience? 2015, once we kind of finished up the IVF process, I kind of realized that, okay, my life has been on hold for the last five years because, you know, you don't want to make big decisions and then bring a child into it or you don't want to, you know. Mm -hmm. And I realized that not only was my life on hold, but I was basically, once that hold pattern kind of ended, I was doing the bare minimum, whatever that was that day. 
And when you work for yourself, you have some extra liberties as far as what the bare minimum actually is. And I was really just living my life as minimally as possible waiting to die. Hmm. And there was one day I just woke up and I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. Like this is junk. I either need to, basically I need to fish or cut bait. Like if you're going to live, live, if you're going to die, die, but pick one kind of thing. And I decided that I was going to live and make it, you know, live a life worth living kind of thing. But that, that wasn't like a, okay, you know, now I'm going to go do all these awesome things. And it it was more like, okay, well, I need to work towards living a life worth living. Hmm. And I started doing very simple things. I started a journal where I would write down at the end of the day, the three things I was grateful for that day and the three things I did right that day. And they were materialistic and very, very lowbrow, to say the least. <laughs> it was like, you know, oh, I got I went to got to go to the coffee shop and have coffee today. I'm grateful for that, you know, and I tried to keep it within the last 24 hours as well you know, Mm -hmm. and not always comment, well, I'm thankful for my husband, because I am every day, every minute of every day, I'm thankful and grateful for my very loving husband. And also, sometimes it's nice to remember to be thankful for other things as well. Well, there's a lot of research, it seems that gratitude and gratitude journals have helped people tremendously with their mindset and just, you know, moving forward. Mm -hmm. So then your husband at this point, was he also improving in his mindset or like you say that you're so grateful for your husband. Did he also go through an emotional darker period with you or was he, did you guys talk about that? Was he an anchor? Like how was your husband handling everything at this point? He definitely went through his own form of grieving, form of grief. Um, We found that we were very good at when one was weak, the other was strong. And whether that Mm -hmm. was for 10 minutes or 10 days or, you know, like, I can tell that I need to be the strong one. So let me be the strong one right now. And then when it's my turn, you can be the strong one kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But he definitely had, I mean, he, you know, all of those societal imposed goals and things that you think that you need to do in life, those were all changed for us. And so then when did you start? maybe casting your energy outward even more? And when did you start to conceive of sharing solace? Sharing solace was one of those bolt of lightning, drop everything you're doing. This is the only thing you're focusing on now kind of projects. It was the wildest thing ever, (laughs) I feel like. And I really think, I mean, just how it came to me, I really think it was my Madeline saying, okay, mom, this is what we're doing. Because it couldn't have been, there was no like little time frame lead up to it. It was like, flick the lights. This is the concept. This is what we're doing. Hold the phones. This is all we're doing <laughs> kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I really think that Madeline sent me what I needed to do. And it was five years into my grief journey where I realized that I either needed to fish or cut bait. Mm -hmm. And I was also getting to the point where all of the beautiful and loving gifts that I had been given at Madeline's funeral and around that time, the things that once brought me so much comfort and so much strength were now just starting to bring back that pain. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and remind me of what I didn't have. And so I got to a point where I needed to do something with I. It needed to be out of sight because mm-hmm. out of sight meant out of mind. But what do you do with that stuff kind of thing? And so that's how Sharing Solace came around. The whole concept is we provide tangible, meaningful gifts to be given to those during that initial heavy grief. They keep it near their heart as long as it brings them comfort. And then when it doesn't do that anymore, they're actually intended to pass it forward to somebody else that needs love and support as they go along their own personal, unique grief journey. And can you explain a little bit about what those tangible offerings and gifts are? Absolutely. Um, So right now we have our necklace and our keychain, which the mechanics of it work the exact same way. So the necklace I'm wearing, there's an outer locket and an inner token, and you wear them together for as long as they bring you comfort. And then when they don't, you actually remove the inner token. You put that inner token into a new locket, a keychain or a necklace, and then you pay that full piece on to somebody else that you know that you love, that needs some help while they're going through their own unique journey. And then you keep your outer locket as a reminder that you're still a whole person. Just a little bit of you is missing and probably always will be, but you are still whole and full. And then the middle token on the backside has a unique identifier that allows you to register it on our website. So you can actually follow it as it moves from person to person, reading about their stories and sharing bits about your story and building a community and finding people that are willing to meet you where you are. So sharing solace, did you originally conceive of it as a community-based type of service? Yes. I knew basically when it came about, it was, okay, there needs to be something that you can hold and it needs to be able to be given to somebody else and it needs to make you feel not alone. Like those were the only three things that I knew. I didn't have, Mm -hmm. you know, any of the business stuff. I was like, I just need to be able to hold something and feel not alone. And then when I'm done with it, give it to somebody else kind of thing. Because I was packing up all those teddy bears and baby blankets and things and putting them in a closet. And I was like, that's not what this stuff is meant to be, but that's where it needs to live now. And going through, especially, I mean, my story of loss and grief is not the only story of loss and grief. It's just the story that I can speak to because I know it. I felt like I could, after the funeral and after, like, I got a lot of, well, just have another kid or, you know, just move on. And, you know, it was just a child. Like, you can have another one kind of thing. And so I felt like I couldn't really talk to anyone about how I truly felt unless I could find someone that had been through the story that I had been through. And it's such a taboo subject that nobody wanted to talk about it. And I think that that encompasses all of grief. You know, you're kind of given a timeline. Okay, you can grieve for six months and then six months is over and you're done. And everything is back to normal and there's puppy dogs, rainbows and all that good stuff. But that's not the case. So I think that this kind of allows you to realize, you know, at some point you do need to release and let go of the debilitating. You don't want to function grief but that you're never truly going to get over it. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I am struck by, I can't help but feel it's insensitive of people to have said that to you. Do you have opinions about that? And how did you handle it? Oh my gosh, do I have opinions about that? I have opinions about everything. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> so one one analogy that I give because I think it's quite fitting is like I've been married and happily married to my husband for almost 15 years. He's a good guy. I love him to pieces. And there are times that I want to call him four letter words. It is my right <laughs> as his legally obligated wife <laughs> to call him whatever I choose to. Now you as an outsider if you call him a four-letter word, we are going to step outside and rumble. Like, I signed up for this. I get to. You don't get to. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way about the platitudes, too. Like, I get to tell myself that everything happens for a reason. I get to tell myself, you know, that Madeline was only an infant. I get to tell myself that God needed her more than I did. I get to tell myself all of those things. And I allow them to become my silver linings. But the second you try to tell me that, we're going to step outside in the alley and have words. But I think people don't know what else to say. They've heard it said before. They think that it's helpful. And so they say the words that they think they should say. Do you think some of it is a discomfort? To who? On their part, do you think some of it is a discomfort? Like they're uncomfortable with the confronting whatever it is oh, you're absolutely. confronting? Yes. Grief is uncomfortable and it is miserable and it is the sooner you can brush it under the rug, the sooner you can't, you do. Mm -hmm. And so people don't want to sit in silence because that's uncomfortable too. And they don't want to sit and have, you know, they don't necessarily want to be there and be your shoulder to cry on either because that's uncomfortable. So let's just say something and, and mitigate the pain and move on to the next thing. Yeah. Did you end up having to tell anyone to knock it off or did you just kind of grin and bear it? Early stages, I just kind of grin and I, I, I found that I would get upset, but I didn't know why I was upset at the time. And so early on, I just kind of let them, you know, let them say what they were going to say. I thought in my head to tell them where to put it and we moved on kind of thing. <laughs> More recently, I'm, I actually, I mean, it probably comes across as me being a huge jerk, but I educate them and say, that is not the right thing to say. Do not say that to people. And here's why. Because, you know, I am a decade out. I'm a decade on my grief journey, but people that are 10 minutes or 10 days or 10 weeks, they don't know what they don't know. And they don't know that it's okay that they don't feel comfortable when people say that to them. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, I feel like I am jerkily giving a service to the world by telling people not to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you don't want to have to say it. I mean, I think sometimes when people say things to us and then we have to kind of defend ourselves or explain why it's not okay, we feel like the bad guy, but really, you know, we're not the bad guy. Like you're being put in a position in a way of having to explain to someone how to help you. And that can be really frustrating, right? It's kind of like when you, you know, again, this is the area that I'm in a lot, but you know, you, you have someone die in your family and a friend comes up to you and says, Oh, you know, I'm so sorry. Just let me know what I can do. Well, now you're giving me another obligation. Not only do I have to work through the grief, but now mm -hmm. I have to think of something that you can do for me so that you feel better. Yeah. So oftentimes I'll just say, you know, I have a friend that lost 
doesn't matter. It could be a job. It could be a parent. It could be a dog. It could be a dream. I'm going to come over and bring movies and we're going to sit on the sofa and watch this movie. Okay. (laughs) You know, or I'm going to come over and do your laundry or I'm going to come and pick you up and take you to target kind of thing. And then they have the option of saying, well, no, I don't want to, or I can't or whatever, but they don't have to come up with something for me to do so that I feel better about who I am. Mm -hmm. And so the sharing solace, how are people finding you? And do you see a particular type of, I feel kind of funny saying this, but do you see a particular type of grief that your service is attracting or is it really a broad range? So sharing solace as a whole is intended for grief in general, whatever. And I believe you can grieve a lot of things. Anything that you lose and can't necessarily get back, you can grieve. So, you know, that's a pet, that's a job, that's a dream, that's a illness, a diagnosis, that can be just about anything. So sharing solace as a whole is for grief. It's for grievers to grieve. That being said, my story is the loss of a child and the loss of the dream of having a biological family. So that's the story that I can speak to. And so I see probably more so grief from a death than any other type of loss. But that's not necessarily by design or how sharing solace functions. That's just because that's the story I can speak to. And you've written a book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Book title is Confessions of a Griever, <laughs> Turning a Hot Mess into a Oat Message, Laughable Lessons for When Life Just Sucks. <laughs> and I know that is a really long title, but I it all needed to be there. <laughs> I don't think it's a long title. I just like it. Okay, good. (laughs) You know, and it kind of plays into all of the pieces of what this book is. But the general idea behind Confessions of a Griever is it is part my story, my memoir of the whole grief process. It is part self-help. So there is some research and, you know, I kind of talk about what we talked about earlier and I getting to call my husband a four-letter word, but you don't get to. Mm -hmm. So that's the self-help part. And then it's also a choose your own grief guide in that the chapters are short. I think the longest one is maybe 2000 words. And at the end of each chapter, you get to pick how you want to move forward in the book. So you, you know, you're given three options and you're like, I want to read this chapter next. And so you turn to page Mm -hmm. 107 and read that chapter. And then at the end of that chapter, you oh, well, I want to read this one. Okay, turn back to page 14 and read that one. Mm -hmm. So there's flexibility and also this sort of intuitive component, right? Exactly. Yeah, because that's how grief works. There is no linear form of grief. It's a loop-de-loop. It's a roller coaster. You think you're towards the end and you get transported back to the beginning type of thing. And so I felt like, why write something in a linear fashion when that's not how it works in real life? Yeah, I really appreciate that. I feel like... um, in talking to you and just even talking about the subject matter of grief, that you bring sort of this vigor and enthusiasm, if I can call it. And it's kind of funny, like talking to you about grief brings me energy, actually, that I never really associate with grief. Exactly. And I, growing up, my mom always told me, well, I can laugh about it or I can cry about it. So I might as well laugh. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's what I try to do in my life. Yeah, there are times that you cry and that's just how it works. But if you get the choice, why not choose to laugh? Mm -hmm. And what do you think is the biggest? I mean, I'm trying to think of my takeaways so far is that grief is not linear. 
how to help people, how to best be of help to people who are going through grief, that grief won't last forever, but it'll always be there, but it will change. Yes. And is there any, are there any other major revelations you've had about grief through your grief journey that we haven't touched upon that you feel like listeners should know? So the quote that I just absolutely love is, you either get better or you get bitter. It's that simple. You either take what you're dealt and allow it to make you a better person, or you allow it to tear you down. The choice does not belong to fate. It belongs to you. And that's by Josh Ship. Yeah, that makes sense. So where can listeners find your book and your work? Well, the easiest place is sharingsolace.com. If you go to just sharingsolace.com, you can meander your way through the boutique to the actual book itself. Or if you go to sharingsolace.com slash book, that'll take you directly to the book. And there's all kinds of information. There's a little video. There's all kinds of good stuff about the book as a whole. Crystal, I've really enjoyed this chance to get to know your story more and your viewpoints on grief and how you have turned your experience into something that can not only help you, but also help people who go through similar grief. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.